So, hey, if you're new, welcome. There are Bibles in the seat backs in front of you. If you forgot one, you can use one. If you don't own one, we'd love for you to have one. Just take it home with you. On the communion tables all throughout the room, there are these. They're called sermon notes. And on the inside, there's some notes that go a little bit deeper into what we're talking about, as well as some questions that go a little bit deeper into what we're talking about. There's also a Proverbs reading list, where if you would like to read through the book of Proverbs, as we go through the book of Proverbs, by the end of the 19 weeks, there's a list that you can read through that and then finish that by the end. If you have a smartphone, you can download an app. It is called Uversion. Click on More and then Events in Uversion. will come up by GPS in your smartphone, and you will get sermon notes, verses, questions, announcements, and everything that goes with today's message. That's a lot of stuff. Whew, I'm going to take a breath before I pass out, right? Uh, my name is Aaron. I'm one of the pastors here. Why don't you stand with me for the reading of God's Word? This is Matthew 22, verse 37. It says, and he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. Let's pray. Father, this morning I ask that you would teach us what it means to be a people who have our hearts intimately connected with you. And that we would listen to what you say and where you lead us. And that we'd be honest enough to take a hard look at our hearts. And where they're leading us astray. And look at the things that we love. And that we would be a people who fully come to the place where we lay all of ourselves before you. Because you bring your people to live in places of great joy and hope again. Amen. Have a seat. Alright, so as I said, we're going through uh, the book of Proverbs throughout the summer. Uh, this is learning how to live in God's wisdom in our culture in a way that brings about a counterculture. And when I say counterculture, that's not a negative thing where we're you know, down with America or our culture stinks, but we want to be a positive change for good in our culture. And so we want to speak how we're for life and for purpose and for meaning and goodness and grace in all the places where others aren't. We want to see people live full lives of hope and meaning because they have found their lives in the person of Jesus. And so to do this, as I said, we're walking through the book of Proverbs because it's a countercultural book about wisdom. And there are lots of things to look in Proverbs, but again, Proverbs is not a book so much of knowledge, it's a book about wisdom. The difference between knowledge and wisdom is knowledge comes very fast, especially in our internet age, but wisdom tends to come slow. And when wisdom comes, we're meant to live out that wisdom in the common spaces of our lives, in our homes, in our workplaces, at our schools, in our friendships, wherever we are, we live that out. And knowledge gives us lots of information about stuff, but wisdom is how we live out that knowledge in practical ways that honors others and most importantly honors God. Now, here's an example. Uh, I am pro-life and I am pro-all life, young, old, rich, poor, born, unborn, whatever gender, whatever political persuasion, musical choice, what, whatever skin color, wherever you live, whoever you choose to love. Okay, I am pro-life. That doesn't mean that we can't disagree about certain things of different political persuasions or things like that. It's okay to do that, but I value all life because God says to value life. That's my knowledge. Now, my wisdom is going to be shown in how I begin to live that out. Uh, now, imagine some young lady had an abortion. It does not do me any good to get in her face and say, oh, I am pro-life, I am against it, because what she needs at that point is hope and healing and grace. And that's what we need to do. So my wisdom is how I live out my pro-life stance. Does that make sense? Okay, good. Today we're going to talk about our hearts because our hearts lead us into trouble all day long. Unless we understand our hearts, we'll continue this long slide into being a bunch of dummies and not produce a God-honoring culture. If you were to take your Bible and you had a pen or a pencil and you were inclined to write in your Bible and you were to circle the word heart or its derivatives in the scripture, you would have 900 circles in your Bible. If the Bible says something 900 times, it's important. Hey, if, like if someone, if you went to Flint, Michigan, and a bunch of people said, don't drink the water, 
you shouldn't drink the water. If you go down to Florida with some kids and they said, don't let your kids play with the gators, and everybody says that, don't let your kids play with the gators. When the Bible says something 900 times, it becomes pretty important. And when you read the scriptures, you have all these poetic images, and God keeps you, because God is a poet. And so you had all these poetic images, and they're layered on top of one another. The scriptures kind of work like that. It's, it's like an onion. You have all these layers, you start to peel them away. And you take God as an example when he reveals and explains himself to us. He does this in a way that connects to our imagination. And so you're told that God is spirit. He's like wind. He's like fire. He's like a rock, a gentle whisper, a king, a warrior, a priest, a shepherd, the vine. He's the resurrection and the life. The, the Bible teaches all these poetic images and layers them so we would understand better who God is. And if I am feeling lost, well, then God's like a shepherd, and God has come to find me. And if I'm in rebellion, well, then God's like a judge and a king. And if I am hurt, God is a father who has come to rescue me. So all these images get laid on top of one another. The same thing is true when it comes to the idea of our hearts. You have all these images in the scripture that will be laid one on top of another to help us understand what our problem really is in our life and then how to then go and make a difference in the culture around us. Our lives are either honoring or dishonoring to God. And when we put those all together, they become collectively a culture. Our hearts shape us. And then in, out of that will then shape the culture around us. And then that culture will then shape us back, which will again shape our hearts. It's like this vicious cycle. And it goes around and around and around. If I asked you, is our culture today messed up? Most people would say yes. Even people who don't believe in Jesus or God would say, yeah, the culture is kind of messed up. And what we've done without Jesus and an understanding of our hearts, if we have created today an entire mental health industry to try and fix us. Now, I think in one sense it's admirable. We do need to help and fix one another. I think the mental health industry does a lot of good things, but our government, as of a few years ago, spends $80 billion a year on the mental health industry. That is on top of what other people on their own pay for therapists and psychologists to come and help us and talk to us. I mean, seriously, $80 billion, and this is our culture. How are we doing? Yeah, oh, okay, we're pretty messed up. We spend all this money to try and figure out who we're supposed to be, to try and figure out what a normal person is. Because if we can figure out what a normal person is, well, then we can say, well, that's abnormal. We can help them become normal. If you want to know what abnormal is, look in a mirror, okay? That, that's abnormal. That's normal. And we're making up all these therapies to try and turn people normal again, but we have a huge fatal flaw in this, and that is none of us know what normal is. None of us know what abnormal is unless you look at our lives. So we're trying to figure this all out. One author writes this, The proliferation of modern counseling is ample evidence that there is much wrong with the human condition. There is an ongoing debate in our age regarding what qualifies as normal and abnormal behavior, but we still diagnose some people who behave abnormally and prescribe a cure for those abnormalities. What he talks about is that today in our society, we have over 300 different schools of thought on what is normal versus abnormal and various treatments on how to fix these things. Now you know why we're all, we're all screwed up. We don't know what we're trying to produce. We don't know how to get there. We don't know what's wrong with us. It's, it's, it's a whole lot of fun. So take a problem like adultery. Sigmund Freud says, well, it's normal. You're meant to have sexual urges. It's primal. You're just a highly evolved animal, so you're going to propagate as much as possible. The National Academy of Sciences comes along and they say, oh, no, no, no. In our biological theory, you're meant to be and stay in committed relationships. You're to bear and care for just your children and grow them up. Both of those models are based in evolutionary theory and they don't even agree. 
The only real constant between these 300 different types of schools of thought out there is in the end, they all say, it's not your fault. You get to blame somebody else. How convenient. That's really nice. It's not your fault. Today, we live in a culture of blame because of this. We blame others, and then we say, oh, no, me, myself, I'm just a victim, right? That's what we do. B.F. Skinner said, blame your environment for whatever messes you up. And I think that there is a huge nurture component in our lives, but it's really only half true. Like, you take Adam and Eve in the Bible. They lived in a nice neighborhood, right? They they had a good neighbor, God. I figure he's got to be a good neighbor. They hung out naked, eating fruit all day. That's not bad. And yet they sin because of an internal environment, not an external environment. How about Satan, right? Cast out of heaven for pride. i got to think heaven's got to be a good neighborhood. Yeah? Okay, okay, you know, but the problem was internal. Sigmund Freud says, no matter what you do, you can't help yourself because you are just a highly evolved animal. Carl Rogers said, well, you just lack self-awareness. You're a really good person. You just don't realize it, okay? You need to realize it. And so he says, you go within, you find the answers, you do meditation, regression therapy, and if something happens in your life where you're not living well, well, then you're not connected well enough to yourself. Now, those are oversimplifications of these things, but that's about what they say. The scriptures teach that we are transformed by Jesus. And one of the ways that happens is renewal of our hearts and our minds. We stop buying into what our culture says and actually start to trust what God says. In Romans 12, 2, it says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what the will of God, what is the will of God, what is good, acceptable, and perfect. And so the Bible, and Proverbs specifically, deals differently than our culture. It says the root problem that we have is our hearts. It's our hearts. And so Proverbs, what it's going to do, it's going to draw this line between the condition of the human heart, the living of a human life, and the forming of a human culture. And the heart is this poetic way of saying all that we are. It's not just an organ. It's our center. It's our essence. It's our nature, like the root of who we are. We're not just mind, body, spirit. We are our hearts. And I don't want you to freak out, but I'm going to give you a lot of information in just just a second. And because Proverbs is kind of like the junk drawer. It's like everything goes in there. You have a junk drawer, right? Everybody has a junk drawer? You don't know where something goes and it goes in there? Yeah, and then you can't find something. It's like, oh, so you go look in the junk drawer and you open it up and you're like, oh, I got to clean this thing up. And you're like, oh, yeah, oh, I didn't even know I had that anymore. It's the junk door. Okay, so that, that's kind of the heart in the book of Proverbs, what that looks like. So I'm going to give you a list. Uh, email me if you if you want a, like a hard copy or an email copy with the verses attached to this, but it's also in your notes as well. Okay, so here we go. In Proverbs, the heart is the seed of understanding, learning, memory, faith, obedience, rebellion, planning, imagination, lust, will, perversity, deceit, folly, anxiety, hope, joy, hurt, grief, peace, wisdom, happiness, discernment, cheerfulness, contemplation, pride, speech, rage, motives, purity, friendship, gladness, envy, violence, reasoning, sadness, evil, sins, joy, and hardness of heart towards God. Now, those are the ones that I found. You might be able to to find some more. And so to rightly diagnose what is really wrong with our human conduct, we have to overcome the propensity to just deal with the effects, like lying, adultery, theft, etc., and focus on the root cause of those things, which is our hearts. So again, Proverbs is poetic in how it deals with the heart and talks about a lot of things and layers them on top of one another. So it's memorable to young and the old both. I'm going to read you a lot of verses today out of the NIV because I think it says it much more plainly. So this is Proverbs 27, verse 19. As water reflects a face, so a man's heart reflects the man. I think that's a good image. No pun intended, by the way. But, But your heart will reflect who you really are. 
If you look closely at your life and your actions, what, what then stares back at you? What, what are, you know, who are you when you get irritated or nobody's looking? What's your web browser history? What does that look like? Uh, NIV, Proverbs, 20, Proverbs 4, verse 23. Above all else, guard your heart, for it is the wellspring of life. Now, a wellspring is an ever-flowing source. This could be sweet water, it could be fresh water, it could be a mineral spring, or it could be sewage, but which smells a lot like a mineral spring. But it, it's telling us that our heart and lives, they are connected. They're connected. And so you can't stop the effects of what your life is producing without addressing the heart. If you're like, oh, I don't want to drink, or I don't want to look at porn, or I don't want to gossip, I don't want to lie. Proverbs says it all comes from our heart and it comes from what we love what we are attaching ourselves to where we are finding our comfort and life in many times we think the answer to all the problems is to begin is become good legalists get more law in my life more things to tell me what not to do but we have to understand that true and real change behavior it only starts in our hearts that's that's where it goes it goes to what we actually love when we react poorly to somebody else, and maybe we say something mean, if someone was to say, why did you say that? Instead of saying, because you made me do this, or this thing happened, so I did that, we really have to be honest and say, because there wasn't love in my heart. Because that's really the true answer. And this is why sometimes I think secular counselors, they are great. I think they can help in a, in a lot of areas. But they're not, in the end, going to understand the heart and how it connects all of us with God and, in the end, one another. Now you, we don't understand where Jesus fits in and what's normal and what's abnormal and how we learn to grow. This is why the scriptures say, guard your heart is the wellspring of life because it's so easy for our hearts to become polluted. In the New Testament, Jesus says in Matthew twelve thirty four, for out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. And I think this is, goes to also how we try to justify ourselves and our actions. Uh, a few years ago, I told you about Amy Carmichael. Uh, she, was a, she was a missionary to India in the early 20th century, and she has this, this great illustration of a glass of sweet water and a glass of dirty, bitter, nasty water. And she says, what comes out of you is an indicator of what is inside of you. If you have a glass of nice, sweet, clean water, and it's sitting on a desk, and you bump that glass, what comes out of that glass? Sweet water. It's not difficult. Okay. So Jesus! No, okay. <laughs> I know you're in church, all right? <laughs> sweet water. If you, have a, if you have a glass at a table and it's full of bitter, nasty water, you bump that glass, what comes out of the glass? Bitter, nasty water, right, because that's, that's what's in there. She says this, it's not the bump that filled the glass, it just knocked out what was inside. Now, you and I, we will get bumped our entire lives. We will be sinned against. Life is like that. It can be disappointing. People will injure you. We, when we get bumped, have a propensity to say, look what you made me do, when what we should really say is, look at what you revealed me to be. Because that's really the truth. That's the honest answer. They didn't change you. Sometimes I think when people bump us, it's actually a great blessing when someone offends us and hurts us because we get to see who we really are. Uh, there's a blog that will go up on our website on Tuesday this week. And I had this, I had this interchange a couple weeks ago when I was going to the post office. And this, this crazy guy on, a, on this bicycle comes up and just starts cussing me out. I, I didn't do anything, okay? At least I don't think I did. I might, I know I didn't do anything. I just, I just pulled in and he just starts swearing at me. And I'm like, and, and my default thing is sarcasm, right? It's, it is like my spiritual gift. I don't know why I got that one. And, and that's where I go. And fi- at the end of it, he finally rides off around the corner. And as soon as he got around the corner, I went, oh, my heart. I got bumped. And it revealed what was in me. And what was in me was not love for this guy's broken condition. What was in me is sarcasm. Because I'm like, well, how dare you? I can do this too. Not the sa- I didn't say the same words, but, you know, <laughs> just, just to let you know. We get to see who we really are. 
Some, some people, you know, live life trying not to get bumped. Uh, at Element, we do gospel communities. And some people are like, I'll never join a gospel community because we don't want anybody to get that close to us. We don't want anybody to know who we really are or hold us accountable. Uh, sometimes when friends get hard, we just change friends. Or maybe Aaron at Element says something you don't like, so you change churches. And people, a lot of times they want to be alone because they think if I'm alone, no one can ever hurt me. But that's not good. That's not how God calls us to do life. Proverbs 20, verse 5, The purpose in a man's heart is like deep water, but a man of understanding will draw it out. I think this tells us that any attempt to reform our lives, it must begin with a sober assessment of our hearts. Uh, Romans 12, 3, For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. Sober judgment means we cannot run around thinking we have a great heart. We tend to do this, though. A few weeks ago, I, I read this post by somebody on Facebook, and they were complaining about all these judgmental people doing all these judgmental things, and how that. And I thought, ooh, sounds a little judgmental, you know, because we, we don't realize when we do it. It's, it's our hearts. In truth, I think an accurate assessment of our hearts is difficult, because almost everybody, everybody believes the thoughts and the motives and the actions of their own heart is pure. Why is that? Because our hearts are deceived. And we are self-deceived, and, we're, and they're deceptive in all that we do. This is out of the NIV again, Proverbs 21, verse 2. All the man's ways seem right to him, but the Lord weighs the heart. How true is that, right? Everything that we do, we think, oh, this is right. Yeah, we convince ourselves it is right, but God sees our heart. Proverbs 20, verse 9. Who can say, I have kept my heart pure, I am clean and without sin? The implied answer is, Nobody, okay? Nobody. Jeremiah seventeen nine. The heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? Guys, your heart is like O.J. Simpson. It thinks it is innocent. It thinks it is innocent. But it's your enemy. Our, our hearts can build an airtight case for anything and everything we want to do. If you're married, you've got to understand this. This is why you always think it's the other person's fault and they're the dummy. And if they would just change, everything would get better. That's our hearts. Our hearts are deceptive. This is why teenagers think their parents are stupid because if my parents would just not be that dumb, my life would be so easy. Their hearts are deceptive. You're welcome. Now you know why all that all works out. Everyone is trying to convince everybody else of their truth and how they're right. How often do people still read the Bible and walk away and disagree with God? We do it because our hearts are deceived. And typically, the first response we have when we get you know, convicted of something is we blame someone else. Jesus quotes Isaiah when he talks to the religious leaders of his day. In Matthew fifteen eight, he says, These people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. I mean, how often do we do that? Right? Some people think if I just say the right words, I never say any bad words like the guy who caught me at the post office. And we say, oh, praise the Lord, have a blessed day, oh, that's lovely. I mean, we think, and, and yet our hearts are so deceived because deep inside we will judge other people who don't use the words that we use. And where other people hear our words, God knows our heart. And because we are deceived, we think everyone is messed up except us, and it's everybody else who is messing up our lives. You know how I know this? I drive a car, and I have been in traffic. That's how I I know this. I have driven in a roundabout. You are all jacked up, okay? (laughs) If you would all drive in a roundabout like me, we would get through those things. No one had to put on their brakes. That's what I'm saying. I don't know why everybody's advice to everybody else is, oh, just follow your heart. I see this in movies and TV all the time. Oh, you need to follow your heart. I'm like, oh, that's the worst thing you can do because your heart is deceived. 
So we got to go back to where we started, which is where we always start. Jesus. Normal is Jesus. Everything else is abnormal. When Jesus comes, he lives a life we should have lived. He does everything surrendered to the will of the Father, which is how we are supposed to live. We are the blind leading the blind. How can we judge someone else's heart when we don't even understand our own? We need someone normal to measure our life by. This is why Jesus alone can examine our hearts. It's why to rightly know the condition of our heart, we must be examined by Jesus and his spirit because he is the great physician. Throughout the scriptures, we are told various things. 1 Corinthians 1 says that Jesus is the wisdom of God in human flesh. In Mark 13 and Mark 6, it says that Jesus taught wisdom from God the Father. In Matthew 15, John 5, Acts 1, it says he alone knows the folly of our hearts. Paul says in Colossians chapter 2, verse 3, that we are invited to come to him and mine from him all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I think in the gospel, Jesus provides us with some categories that we can actually look and investigate our hearts a little bit. So let me investigate with you. Matthew chapter 5, verse 28. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman that goes for dudes too, it's like, oh, okay, goes for dudes too, with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So first, Jesus tells us here that we're not a victim of TV or movies or magazines or how someone dresses. If someone is going to lust, you could put them on a desert island in the middle of nowhere and they will still lust. This is why legalism is a failure. Legalism doesn't deal with our hearts. Legalism, all it does is put laws around us to try and stop us from doing certain things. Jay Adams writes this, legalism is a rearranging of the flesh, trying to give ourselves more rules is only trying to change things around us so our hearts don't have to surrender to Jesus and to actually change. Matthew 6, verse 21, For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. What do you fixate on? What do you think about all the time? And Jesus says this in regard to our money. You want to look where your heart a lot of times is? Where's your money go? Car, entertainment, wine, beer, food, you know, electronics. You know, what is it? See, we are a people who all the time will spend all this money, all this stuff when it comes time to be generous and give to God. We're like, I don't have any money. As we scroll on our brand new iPhone with our state-of-the-art Bluetooth headphones, be like, I don't know why I don't have money. Maybe you get a budget app on your phone. That might actually help. Then you got to pay for that. So I don't know. The, the sad thing is we're always looking for ways to use the scripture and God to agree with us because our hearts are deceptive. Our hearts are always trying to turn everything so we put us first. Mark seven twenty one to 23. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual morality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All of these evil things come from within and they defile a person. And then that goes into where Jesus then says, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. That out of the wellspring of our hearts, all this stuff comes. And many times our response is, well, you don't understand. They didn't use their turn signal, or they're really mean. I was reading this story a couple years ago. This guy, he's got his two-year-old son in the backseat of his truck. And, the, and he's got his you know, kid seat in, and the kid can't even see the road. And somebody cuts him off, and he slams on his brakes, and he hears this kid in the backseat go, idiot! Where does the kid learn that? Train up a child in the way you should go. And that's, that's where the kid learns it. It's, it's our hearts. Proverbs 20, verse 9. Who can say, I have made my heart pure. I am clean from my sin. Nobody. Nobody. And so what Jesus does through a great gift of his spirit is he metaphorically cuts out our hearts and he wants to show it to us so we see what it actually is. Because we need a sober assessment of our hearts. Only then will we begin to change. The scriptures teach that God is aware and concerned about the condition of our hearts, that he has inclined his heart towards us to rescue us, that we cannot simply manage our old heart. What we need is a new one, a redeemed one. 
And this is what the scriptures teach that God comes to bring. When we become renewed and trust in him, we get a new heart. This is why the gospel is good news. Because if we're honest about our hearts, we need some good news. Ezekiel eleven nineteen, God says, I will give them one heart and a new spirit I will put within them. I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh. See, that's another layer, another poetic layer. We have, our hearts are like stones stuck in our chest. And God wants to come and remove it and put in flesh. So when the spirit breathes like he's wind, our hearts are like, oh, God's moving. I can feel that. He's talking. This is amazing. God says, I will take out that rock that you call a heart. And I will give you a heart of flesh. Uh, Ezekiel thirty six twenty six. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. Jeremiah 24, verse 7. I will give them a heart to know that I am the Lord and they shall be my people and I will be their God. For they shall return to me with their whole heart. If we really want to see if our hearts have begun to change, we should ask ourselves if we really love God first. If we really want to follow him, if we understand how much he has loved us, and that has changed us to be a people who begin to respond like him. If you have a new heart, that's something we must never take for granted because it's a miracle. It's, it's a miracle. And we can't think we have a new heart just because we went to a church service at one point. James 1.22 says, but be doers of the word, not hearers only. What that means is we begin to live differently because it's a response to what God has done by giving us a brand new heart. And when God gives us that heart, I I think our hearts have to be kept soft to hear what God says. And that is daily surrender to who he is. It's following him by going back and understanding the good news of his rescue of us. Understanding the gospel. Because that brings us to a place daily where we surrender to him because we realize that we are not the ones who are good. That he is the one who is good. And sometimes our hearts, even when they are new, they're still going to pump sewage. The scriptures teach that when we abuse our hearts or neglect it, our hearts get hard. And this is why the scriptures also teach that God comes and he wants to circumcise our hearts. Circumcision is the process where flesh is cut away. And the Holy Spirit then comes in so we can feel and be alive again. Matthew 13, verse 15. For this people's heart has grown dull. That's actually the word for calloused. And with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their ears and hear... See with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand and with their heart and turn and I would heal them. Deuteronomy 30 verse 6. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, that you may live. Because many times our repentance before God, it is this idea that we return to who he calls us to be. And by returning we say, God, you are right and I am wrong and I will not deceive myself any longer. Callousness is when God keeps prodding and getting a hold of our hearts where we just shut it down and we don't listen and we don't follow the things that he says. Callousness comes when we know what God says and we refuse to change. And I don't know if you can see the beauty of the good news of the gospel in this, that our hearts are so hard, they wanted nothing to do with who God was, and yet Jesus came to break through that. And he rips the calluses off of our hearts and restores us to a place where we can feel and heal. And speaking of salvation and hope and the good news of the gospel, the Apostle Paul says in Romans 2, 28 and 29, For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. See, what do we do as a people is we open our hearts to Jesus. God's spirit comes in, and it changes us and renews us and restores us. And when he does, God will say, that's hardness of heart. That's rebellion. Let's get rid of that. Why? Because God loves us. 
And he wants it to go well for us. And he wants us to live these lives that we are intended to live. And the end result of the gospel in our hearts is that this new heart is continually cleansed of its callous condition. And we will begin to live a life of joy as our heart begins to beat in rhythm and time with God's heart. Because God has created us for life and joy in him. And only then will we be able to begin to bring about a counterculture. Only then will things begin to change because God has renewed us and saved us and we realize that and begin to live that out because of his goodness. God gives us a new heart and he continually comes to rip the calluses off of our heart when it becomes hard. The conclusion of all this is for a purpose. What is it? So we can love him because he first loved us. So we can delight in him. We can live in wisdom and knowledge. This is why the scripture writers loved Psalm 37 verse 4. It says, delight yourself in the Lord. Delight is a great word. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. So let me ask you a question. What are your desires? What does your heart desire? What are you looking forward to? What do you spend your time and energy on? And if you're honest... I mean, I don't think anybody can say 100% of the time or maybe 99% of the time or 1%. We, we, we actually spend our time thinking about God and his ways in our lives. We, we are so easily offended and hurt by so many things around us all of the time. We are constantly on the lookout for someone who is going to hurt us. And so we're, all of our desires are typically geared inwards towards ourselves. And when God gives us a new heart, our desires begin to change. We begin to look and see what he's calling us into. And so I think an honor and sober assessment of our heart this morning starts with asking ourselves, what do we really desire today? What do we desire? And in that, let God start to show us the places where our heart has become calloused and hard and where it's looking for things that are not him. I think one of the best ways we do this is coming to the place of communion where you take that cracker like Christ's body and you break it like his body was broken for us and you dip it in the wine or the grape juice reminding us of his blood that was shed for you and me. Because at this place, we lay all that we are down and we say, God, you are right. You are right. And I need salvation and hope and restoration. And this is the idea of a reminder of that, what God has done to rescue and save us. And it's meant to humble us, to bring us to a place where we trust him in all things because God has first loved us. Uh, the band's going to come up. As they do, I'm going to buy you two take communion. There's going to be some deacons in the back. And if you guys need prayer, maybe you're in a place today where you feel like your heart is just really hard right now. Like there's some things that are going on around you and it has made you very callous, uh, maybe to other people and to God himself. And you would like somebody to pray with that, that God would begin to remove that hardness of your heart. Maybe you have some situations going on in your life right now that you feel like is, is starting to make you harder and harder and you want to stay tender and you want someone to pray with you about that. They would love to pray with you about that. Because if we are an honest people, all of us are in this place where our hearts get hard and callous over certain things. It is, it is, I think, why the scriptures teach that we are to be filled daily surrendered to who Jesus is. That we are to be filled daily with God's spirit. Because when we're not, our hearts slowly become harder and harder and harder. And yet God wants us to be a tender people so we can actually live and love in this world the way he calls us to. And that never happens by more laws. What it happens is, is by understanding the grace that has first been extended and given to us. And we live in the good news of that gospel and what we do. That's, you want to grow closer to Jesus? Take time and think about the gospel. Think about what God has done to rescue and save us. And by doing that, I think it brings us to a place of more and more humbleness before him because we understand his great love that was first given to us. And that will enable us to lay our hearts bare before him as he does the hard work of cutting the calluses off of them.
there is uh, offering boxes next to every door we give because God gave so much to us giving us in part of our worship. Uh, there's some donuts and food and stuff outside. Grab some, meet some people, take some sermon notes. Uh, if you, hopefully you have someone in your life that's close enough to you that you can have some of these conversations with about where is the callousness in your heart? You know, where, where is your heart hard? And then how can they, they pray and walk with you through some of those things that your heart can be a little softer? I, I got to tell you, I was having a conversation, I don't know if it was yesterday or the day before, and somebody just mentioned the, 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 you know, the polarization of our society in regard to politics and, and how none of these two sides are even coming together seeing the humanity in the other side. When we have soft hearts... You know, we may disagree with somebody else on things, but we are meant to come together in grace and peace and love because our focus is first the gospel. That's what it is. And I think it's very telling how callous hearts have gotten on both sides of the political aisle. And we must be a people who see that in ourselves. And though we may not act like anybody else in this world, we will act like countercultural change agents when we trust God first and allow all those calluses to be ripped away. Because we actually begin to live in the grace and the hope and the love that he brings. So let's be a people who are about God's love and grace first given to us that we live out and have hearts that are fully surrendered to him that beat in time with his heart. Because our God is good. Let's pray. Father, this morning, I ask that you would remind us daily to lay ourselves before you and to trust you. God, I think that we are a people who could freely confess that the hardness of our hearts to us many times doesn't look like hardness. The judgment that we have towards others in our own hearts, it doesn't translate to us as judgment and so I ask that you would come and take the callousness off of our own hearts and you would do that by helping us to understand your great love given to us that we would be humbled by how you have come to rescue and save and that we ourselves would begin to change every single day, surrender to you, understanding the great hope that you have given to us. I ask that today you would give us a sober assessment of our hearts. That hopefully this week we would, we would think about the things that have been said. And as we examine our own hearts, we would be open enough to have you come and examine them as well. And that when you point out the places of of hardness and rebellion, we would listen to you and call it what it is and begin to surrender those places to you so that we would be able to live out in the great joy that you provide. That our entire lives would be surrendered to you and your goodness. And that we'd be a people who truly can live in a countercultural way that brings hope and joy and life again. Because of your grace. Have us be a people who live in the deep understanding that you have paid everything to rescue us. And if there is anybody that we owe anything to, it is all you. Because you are the great God who has rescued us. We ask that you would teach us to live in your grace. Amen.